listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries, Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. I want to continue now on the series we've commenced a few weeks back, and we're exploring the theme of the grace of God. This is, I think, our 20-something session on the theme, and we've covered quite a bit. Of recent, we've been exploring the whole issue of how grace attends humility. James 4, 6 says that God will oppose the proud, but He will give grace to the humble. So if you are proud, God stands in opposition toward you. But if you are humble, grace is attracted toward you. So grace attends the humble man, but God stands in opposition to the, to the proud man. And we've dealt quite significantly to some depth over how the issue of humility is critical, a critical, essential disposition within men, within us, by which when God looks at us from the heavens, He sees something in us that is so akin to everything that He is. So if He looks at men from the heavens and He sees humility in a man, that humility has at its foundation the heart of a servant that bows low doesn't stand erect in proudful arrogance or with boastful arrogance or with ostentatious looks. That humility is always lowly. It's unobtrusive. It's not in your face. It's recessive. It takes rather the background as opposed to occupying the foreground. It's the, it's the heart of the man which chooses to abase himself rather than promote himself, so it's always a mentality. I said to you that humility is a disposition and character of one's spirit first before it's characteristic of one's mind, okay? So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, who though being in the form of God, thought, thought equality with God, not a thing to be grasped at, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Being found in the fashion of a man, the Bible says he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus is our model for humility. It says of him, he was equal with God. But he did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. But he was willing to empty himself of deity, of divinity, of his godness. Take on the scheme of human flesh. Take on the form of man, the lowest state of existence. Right? So he, and the Bible, in describing that whole transition of the Lord emptying himself of deity, uh, being born into Mary's womb as a child, being functioning as a human on the planet, 
for 33 and a half years, that process, the Bible talks about it being an act of self-humbling on the part of Christ. He humbled himself to do that. He had to empty himself of something and adopt another schema. The Bible says he took on the schema or the fashion of a man. But the form did not change. Please note, two different words are used there. He says he was in the form of God. Though being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Or as some versions say, did not think equality with God a thing to be held on or to be grasped. But it says he took upon himself the form of a servant and he appeared as a man. Watch. The appearance changed. The form remained consistent. He was in the form of God and he took on the form of a servant but adopted the schema or the outward appearance as a man. So in his manhood, the internal constitution did not change in him. So it proves that in deity or in God, there is something called an eternal servanthood. That did not change when he left deity and he came on the earth and took upon the form of a man. The form of God is the form of a servant. All Jesus did, he changed the outward external appearance of it. It was God he came as a man. Now here's the thing. If whatever station in life you occupy, your schema can change. Your outward visage can change. But the internal constitution must remain consistent. Right? So it's, it's no problem for him to derobe himself, put on a servant's towel, and lower himself and wash his disciples' feet. Why? The, the external form can change. But internally, he's what at heart? He's a servant. Right? And he does not derive his identity by the schema he adopts. He doesn't derive who he is by the function that he occupies in life. He has no problems doing the most menial of tasks because he knows the task does not define his identity. Because when you know who you are in God, you will do literally anything that God expects you to do because the thing that you do does not define you. So that's why it's important to establish identity first before you engage function. That's all. If you don't know who you are, you will always to seek to establish who you are by what you do. And you become performance-oriented. So I gain or I feel good about myself or I think that people will appraise and evaluate me more better the better I perform. So there's pressure to perform. But when did the Lord say to Jesus, when did the Father say to Jesus, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. When? When he was baptized by John in the River Jordan. Remember? Jesus is baptized and he came up out of the water. Not so? The heavens opened and the Father said, you are my son and I'm very happy with you. Did Jesus do anything up to that point? What recruited the pleasure of God in the son was not what he did. Not one miracle, not one major work was performed. 
It was the quality of the person he was. God must firm identity. In fact, when you function from an already affirmed identity because of character and who you are, that is your authorization to do, to function. Because now you know I will function based on His will, not my function determining my value. Right? Because my value is already established right? in Christ. Okay? Now, the proudful, arrogant man always seeks to do things in order for people to say, well done, bro. <laughs> you know? And you feel, and you get your self-worth by the applause of men. What if when you do, and you do well, but no one applauds you? Do you feel and leave depressed? <laughs> right? No, you should not. Eh? Right? If you know who you are in Christ, then whatever you do in Christ, with purity of motivation, with purity of heart, you know that when you put your head on that pillow, when you sleep at night, that God approves of you, even though no man applauded you. That is the greatest feeling on the planet. However, it is possible to receive the greatest applause of men and to receive rejection by God. That is the worst feeling on the planet. Okay? Everyone say, be humble. So if you want the grace of God to attend you, you must adopt a humble disposition. A humble disposition of heart. Now, I asked you to look at the book of Esther in the week. And I think this week was the busiest week for our church chat group with all of the revelation that came forth from the book. We read two chapters a day from Monday through to Friday. And many of you shared some very powerful thoughts from each chapter based upon what you see of the things we've been talking about manifest in the life of the person. Who wants more grace? Yes? It's not just more grace. James 4 says he gives a greater grace. Megas, the Hebrew, the Greek word for greater is megas. Doesn't just denote quantity as in more of. It denotes quality. Certain pedigree, certain quality of grace is given to the one that is of a humble heart. When you read the book of Esther, I'm going to get straight into it because of time. If you want to hear some of the details of this teaching, we did some of this last year when, we, when I taught on fasting, remember? And we explored the book of Esther in some detail. Because she fasted for three days, her and all the Jews. And how that fasting in that context was used together with other factors as a powerful tool that ensured the will of God for one's personal life prevailed, and also for an entire corporate community. Now, I'm not going to go to those details. If we look at the book of Esther through these lenses, when we look at Esther, we see the playing out of the will of God successfully within the context in which there was a very serious, satanically engineered plot to annihilate and kill the people of God. Remember that the, the, the book of Esther is set somewhere between the return of 
the first wave of exiles from Babylon. Uh, when Israel was in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. This is a, you can place the context. 70 years, not so? And they returned after 70 years back to their native country. The return wasn't once-off, like when they were incarcerated in Egyptian bondage for 430 years, remember? Moses in one night led the whole nation out. But the, the captivity in Babylon was different to the captivity in Egypt. The Babylonian captivity, while they, it's, a, it's a wonderful contrasting study to do, but in Babylon they came out in three waves, three installments, under Zerubbabel, under Ezra and under Nehemiah. Somewhere between the return of the exiles, between the first wave under Zerubbabel and second under Ezra, the events in Esther took place. Just for you to contextualize what is happening. By this time, listen carefully, the Persian Empire, and Persia will overtake Babylon in the process. The, Persian, the Persians had this mindset of world domination. If you watch the movie, The 300, you'll see the king, Ahasuerus, or as he's known, Xerxes, right? This, 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 this prideful, whenever you think of Persians, you think pride, not so? They stand arrogantly, they think the world is theirs, and there's nothing that can stop them in their path to obtain anything they set their eyes on. Even today, you use the phrase Persian pride. It stands arrogantly. And so, listen carefully. By the time we read the narrative in Esther, they had conquered all the land from India up to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, Persian provinces, scattered throughout that entire geographical stretch. Right? Queen Vashti, who was Ahasuerus' wife, or Xerxes' wife, refused to come to a banquet that he authorized. He wanted to show her beauty off because he summoned all the ruling princes in each province to come to this banquet. And she refused to come at his request because he wanted to pridefully show off her beauty to the rest of the, of the princes. It was a violation that would lead to a deposition. Because she refused, the princes managed to convince the king. This is setting the wrong pattern for the kingdom. How can the king's wife refuse a command of the king? Do you know what's going to happen, they said to the king? All the wives in all the provinces are going to take their cue from the pattern that your wife is setting for every one of us in the kingdom. Right? And so, listen carefully. A major theme in the book of Esther is how the behavior of one influences the entire corporate community. Amen? And so, they suggested her deposition. She be deposed. She be dethroned. Right? Which she is. To replace her, a, a search was made for all the most beautiful virgins from all 127 provinces. Search was made and they were brought to Susha or Sushan, the capital from which Xerxes or Ahasuerus ruled. The girls were prepared for one year before they even made an appearance before the king. 
For six months they bathed in myrrh, in myrrh. Another six months in all kinds of precious oils. It was purification and beautification. Now the Persians went to great lengths. Not only did they choose the best looking girls in the first place. Once chosen, you come and you have a one year beauty treatment before you appear before the king. How's that? Who would like to go to that spa? <laughs> Any lady takers here? <laughs> huh? And it's amazing. Esther was under the, the, the oversight in, this, in, this, in the king's quarters, under this administration, under a gentleman by the name of Hege, or Hegai, as some people call him. The Bible says even he, I mean, there's thousands of beautiful young virgins, but the Bible says, but even in his eyes, Esther found grace. It's like he knew this is the girl for the king. Right? Time came for her to appear before the king, and there was the last-minute preparations made under Shagaz, another gentleman. And this time, the ladies, before they appeared before the king, could request anything that they would prefer to enhance their chances of being chosen by the king. Anything you wanted from Shagaz. I often say, and Esther said, Angas. <laughs> You know, because the Bible says when Esther's turn came, the Bible says, and she did not request anything further from Shagaz other than which Hegai had already prepared her with. Enough was enough for her. She did not need any other further trappings to enhance the inward beauty that God sovereignly had given to her. Do you know what Hegai means? My meditations. My meditations. I want to encourage you. I spent almost 10 sessions on the theme of meditation with you. Your meditation on the Word of God is the purification, preparation process for your beautification in things spiritual. She did not need anything external. Because you see, it was a natural process. And we could go into detail concerning what myrrh in that context represents and all the other sweet spices. Uh, time will not permit that right now. What I want to emphasize is to not neglect your times of meditation on the Word of God. That is the preparatory or the preparatory process by which God will prepare you to be used strategically in kingdom affairs. Okay? So tell your neighbor, don't forget to meditate. Do you, if you remember the whole message on meditation, the predominant Hebrew word for meditate is haga. This gentleman's name is Hega. My meditations. Meditation on the word was all that this girl needed. The king saw her immediately, the Bible says, and she found great favor, great grace in his sight. She's chosen as king, great banquet organized, etc. Watch. Now, the Bible says, who was Esther, by the way? Esther, her, her, her name is, let me just tell you, who doesn't know the story of Esther? I'll tell you a story quickly, right, in case you know. 
some of the youngsters here don't know this. Right? So just so that you're in the loop. Okay? Long story short, I'm, I'm abbreviating this like with brevity. <laughs> you know, this is an abbreviated abbreviation. Okay. Watch. Um, Esther's chosen. She's now the queen. Right? Of, of, of all the Persian provinces. Her uncle is, sorry, her cousin is Mordecai. Mordecai is an older cousin of hers. When, Mordecai, when Esther was young, she was orphaned. Her parents died. Her older cousin Mordecai took her, the Bible says, as his own daughter. For many years he looked after her. Even while she was selected as one of the virgins, and she was taken and prepared for one year by Haggai, the Bible says, Mordecai paced, went to and fro, up and down, Every day, in one year, every day, inquiring as to how Esther was. His concern for her was deep. He took oversight as what? As a father. Because all the, the spirit of the orphan. Watch. An orphan is one without a father. Today we're celebrating Father's Day. And I think the book of Esther is a powerful case study of how that, in the absence of fathering, God can supernaturally raise up one to fill the gap and provide fathering to a person whose destiny is strategic. So in the book of Esther, Mordecai is a representation of spiritual fathering. In the book of Esther, Esther is not simply Mordecai's cousin. We look at it as though Esther is a spiritual son to a spiritual father. One who has oversight, cares for her, raised up in the ways of Jehovah God. And, and now she's chosen to occupy a political position in the kingdom that ruled the day. Okay? Mordecai years, over years, while sitting one day in the gates of the king, a plot to assassinate Xerxes by two officials. He communicates this intel to the king. The two individuals are taken and they are thrown in prison, right? And that's, that's dealt with. Another gentleman that plays a significant role in the book is one by the name of Haman. Haman is a central figure in the book, but he's an enemy of the Jews. He hates the Jews with all his heart. I think personally, the Bible calls him an Agite. Haman the Agite, a descendant of Agag. Descendant of Agag. Do you remember in biblical history when Saul was commanded to kill the Amalekites and take nothing from them? Remember he killed, he kept the best sheep and he spared the life of the king. And the king was an Agagite, Agagite king. Right? The prophet Samuel chided him for doing that. Eventually the king would be slaughtered. They would kill the king. Right? Saul was a Benjamite. King Saul was a Benjamite. Now, amazingly, Mordecai was a Benjamite. Watch, Mordecai is a Benjamite from the same lineage as King Saul. Here is Haman, a descendant of Agag, the king that Saul would eventually kill. What Haman is harboring in his heart is a long standing bitterness. Against Jews generally. 
hatred for the Jews. He hated the Jews with all his heart. He was prime minister to Xerxes. He managed to convince Xerxes to, or Ahasuerus to, on a particular day, the 13th of the month of Ada, to totally destroy and kill every single Jew in every single province, including Canaan. Right? So he had this hatred towards the Jews. When the information got to Mordecai that this plot is afoot, sends word to Esther. He says, my girl, you're in a, such a powerful position. Oh, by the way, Mordecai told Esther not to reveal her nationality to Xerxes. Don't tell the man that you are Jew. Right? Don't tell him now. And Mordecai says to Esther, who knows that God raised you up to this position for such a time like, like this. You better warn and use your political, warn the king and use your political clout to protect the Jews in this, in this plot to assassinate them. Okay? I'm not going to go to the details because of time here. Just carefully. Uh, just, 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 just quickly rather. There is... Mordecai refuses every time he sees Haman. He's the only Jew refusing to bow to Haman. Haman becomes all the more, all the more incensed. Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't approach the king on this matter, we're all going to die. You die, I die. You and your father's house will be wiped out. All your kinsmen, all the Jews are going to be wiped out. Now listen carefully. No one could simply approach the king, even if you're the king's wife. Unless the king summoned you. It would have been instant death. So, she makes this statement. Eventually, okay, I will go and approach the king. And if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. So she makes an appearance before the king at a distance. He sees her. Has not summoned her. Could have meant instant death. The Bible says he extends his scepter towards her, which was a gesture of authorization to come near. She comes near. He says, my dear, you found great favor in my sight. Ask me anything you want. Even up to half of my kingdom, I will give it to you right now. I would like that kind of open check. Your boss must call you in. Name your, name your salary increase. Right? So Esther's got this power now. She's the king's wife. She's got the request from her, her spiritual father, her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai told her, God put you there. Not just for anything. You've come into the kingdom for a time like this. You, excuse me, use your position to, to administrate and to facilitate God's purposes for his people. Long story short, she says, okay, organize a banquet. She doesn't tell him what she wants. Organize a banquet and invite Haman. And you know the long story, the second night of the banquet, Haman is there. And she reveals to the king of Haman's plot to, to totally wipe out. Uh, this was mass genocide of all the Jewish people. Right? The king is incensed. The king is incensed. Okay? Before that though, remember he said, remember Mordecai's plot. Mordecai's revelation, rather, 
of the two gentlemen that tried to assassinate the king and how he, he, he broke that to the king. Right? That news comes to the king. Right? And the king says to Haman, without revealing that it was Mordecai, that the man that was responsible for this must receive the greatest honor in the kingdom. Let's ride uh, the king's chariot, the king's horse, must be robed with king's apparel, etc. And Mordecai thinks that the king was, uh, the king thought that, uh, sorry, uh, Haman thought that the king was referring to him proudfully, so he assumed things, but it was a reference to Mordecai, right? And he was even more greatly incensed. Okay, long story short, I'm cutting out several details now. It's going to get to the principles. Okay, I'm going to get to the principles. When Mordecai learned that now the king, so when, 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 when Haman learned the king plans to elevate Mordecai, right? He's so incensed. He plans to, he had already planned to hang Mordecai on gallows. They were built already. Okay? When Esther reveals to the king, it was actually Haman's plot to kill the Jews. The king authorized that Haman be hanged on the same gallows that he had constructed to murder Mordecai on. So it's like no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. The evil designed against you if, you, if you live circumspectly and maintain your rightness and righteousness before God, the evil that's designed against you, God will work it in for your good. Right? The, the, the book of, Med, of, of, of Esther is a powerful case study of how that God is sovereign and He's sovereignly in charge of the affairs of men. No weapon that is formed against me will prosper. I want to encourage you. Now, there, there, Haman is eventually hanged on the gallows. Mordecai is raised up to his position. Mordecai becomes prime minister, right? And occupies his position. Now watch what the scripture says. The Bible says God will abase the proud, but he will, he will raise the humble. He will exalt the humble. Okay? I want to encourage you. The Bible says, Psalm 75, promotion doesn't come from the east nor the west, but God is the one who puts down one and he sets up, a, he sets up another. I want to encourage you, if you live your life right and in righteousness before the Lord, that God will sovereignly see to it that no matter what plot and who plots against you, the thing will not work. In fact, if they plot, their plots will work against them. Right? I mean, how is it un so uncanny? The gallows you construct to hang another, they hang you on. So, I'm saying this because I'm picking up something prophetically in the meeting. I want to encourage you. Some of you are dealing with plots and schemes against you. People are jealous of you. And they will plot your demise. I want to encourage you. Don't lose another night's sleep on those issues. Don't you just keep your peace. And watch how God will justify you. And work out things on your behalf. You wouldn't have to lift a finger. God will sovereignly sort these things out. Tell your neighbor, my life is in God's hands. My life is in God's hands. Esther, watch carefully. Esther came to the kingdom 
And she was used by God powerfully, not just to save her own life, but to save all the Jews. Do you know further to the story? On the 13th month of Adar, the day that Haman authorized the murder of all the Jews in 127 provinces, the king passes through Mordecai and edict, authorizing every Jew throughout the empire to take up arms and they have the right to defend themselves. In one day, 75,000. The Jews murdered 75,000 of others that attempted to take their life. Because they were functioning not so, not so much out of a defense of their welfare. The defense came from kingly authorization. Right? And when they have kingly authorization, it takes the capacity to defend to another level. Right now there's a global attack on the church. Theirs was physical, ours is ideological. The world is attacking everything sacred that we, the church, stands for. Right? There was an actual war. The Jews were going to be obliterated. Now there's a whole lot of ideologies promulgated, purported, through political means and, and other means that challenge everything we stand for. And when I read the book of Esther, the Lord said this to me. I will entrench your right to defend yourself. Supernaturally, I will entrench your right to defend yourself. You know, the hour in which you think will be the hour of your greatest crises could be the day of your greatest emergence into something powerful. You know, I'm just picking up something. I want to lay fear today. Do not fear. Do not fear the future. History, biblical history, Church history has proven to us over and over again the church of God will survive and will continue to stand. Amen? We're not threatened in in any way. Amen? So here are a couple of principles that I want you to encourage you to encourage you with. What is Esther without Mordecai? What is Timothy without Paul? What is Joshua without Moses? What is Elisha without Elijah? What is Ruth without Naomi? What is John Mark without Peter? Everyone needs a spiritual father. No, biblically, no personality in the Bible ever was used to a significant degree without the oversight of spiritual fatherly oversight over them. You take Mordecai out of the book of Esther, it is total loss. It is this fatherly disposition over a son that guides her. Even when the son can't obey, Mordecai says to her, listen girl, God has brought you to the kingdom for a time such as this. If you don't do it, we all die. Right? You and your father's house will perish. It's Mordecai that, that, that configures her mindset as to why she got the position in the first place. It was all part of God's plan to get her there. So she could use her prowess, her influence, her beauty, her persuasion, all of that. It's amazing. Don't use your natural assets for the wrong person, for the wrong reasons. 
your natural skill, your natural ability, things you're naturally endowed with for the wrong thing. I sense this morning God is saying to all of us, I've graced you, I've blessed you, I've given you so many positive things you can point to in your life. God is saying now, take all of that and simply channel it in for my kingdom purpose. Right? Now, just tell your neighbor, you don't have all that you have for nothing. <laughs> I'm saying to God, use whatever you've endowed me with graciously. I want to take it all in and channel it to divine purpose. What is life? What is life? If at the end of your life, God cannot say of you, here's my son who made a significant contribution to the playing out of my purposes in the affairs of men. What then is life if we simply wake up, exist, take care of family, go to work and live life, and when we die, the memory of us is wiped off from the planet? The legacy of Esther goes on. In fact, Esther didn't only make powerful impact for a time. She makes powerful impact beyond her time. You know why? If it wasn't for Esther and Mordecai, do you know, there would not be a Jew alive today. Literally. Hitler got nothing on Haman. Let me say, Hitler is like Sunday school picnic. Before, when you compare him and his intent uh, to annihilate the Jews, when you compare him in terms of what Haman, author, what, what Haman wanted to do. I got a verse uh, somewhere here in my notes that, uh, that, that, that lays out the extent of, of the degree. Listen to this. This is Esther 3.13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to watch the terms used. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ada, to seize also their possessions as plunder. This was a serious, satanic attempt to wipe off from the planet, every Jewish expression. Now, it's not so much the Jews that we, we're focusing on because they were, the, they were the people of God in their context. Right? And from the Jews, from Judah, the Messiah would come through Davidic line. Not so. The Messiah would issue forth. So to wipe off all the Jews was essentially saying what? We are opposed to the revelation of Christ. The, the, Haman is used by God, by, by Satan, to wipe out the very means God had authorized to use to bring forth Jesus. Right? Do you know the attack on the church presently is, hasn't changed? The attack is still simply to attack every representation of Christ in and through the people of God. Right? Now, I want to encourage you Esthers in the house. You and Esther, stand up and fight for that. What I want you to encourage you with today, brethren, with all my heart is, when you leave this building, it's not business as usual. There's crisis globally. 
Now I cannot simply be nonchalant, blasé about spiritual things, about my relationship with God. I want to tell you all, God has called you also to His kingdom for a time like this. Serious time in which we are, in which we are living. And let me just say this to all of you. All of you have a significant contribution to make to the outcome of God's purposes, ensuring that the welfare of God's people is held intact. Because you take the salt of the earth out of the earth, the earth has got no chance. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Not so? Amen? So I want to encourage you to, to focus on your God-given mandate to make a difference. To make a difference. Just quickly. This is, there's so much in this book. Unfortunately, we can't get through all of it now. I want to just start to conclude by challenging you with the meaning of her name. Esther is the Persian equivalent of Hadassah. The Hebrew Hadassah, Esther, that is a court name. That is a royal name appended by the, the Persians. Right? She was known as Hadassah. Everyone say Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle. Myrtle suggests joy in terms of how it's used in Scripture. And it was always symbolic of God's blessings. Right? Always symbolic of joy and also the blessedness of, of God upon a people. The plant exuded a very sweet fragrance. Right? Pleasant and sweet fragrance. And all these descriptors are so apt for, for Adasa, right? For, for, for the girl that, and the lady that she was. The way in which myrtle, I check this out in several passages of Scripture. Wherever the word myrtle is used, often in the Old Testament, it's used in contexts like, for example, God would say, I will cause the myrtle to bloom and sprout even in a desert. Several references like that. So it, it almost acts contrary to its prevailing conditions and brings about the fragrance it, that, it, that it's, it's programmed to bring in terms of its DNA. And conditions do not determine that. And even when conditions are antagonistic to that reality, the plant will simply still produce the fragrance. So Hadassah or Esa is placed within a carnal, sensual Persian context. And in that context, she is to produce the scent of God. She is to produce the fragrance of God in an environment that was totally contrary to that reality. Now, I want to encourage you, wherever you go, wherever you are, you are the fragrance of the Lord in the place. Don't let the conditions of your environment douse and quell your godness, your Christ-likeness. When we were when I was a gymnast, a gymnast, the things I used to do, we sing that song, I do them no more. <laughs> okay. I remember back in the day, I was at high school, and we were there in, in Sydney, one of the halls there, all the schools, all the gymnastic teams, and uh, we formed a line. We were just testing each other, 
And there was this powerful trampoline they had and huge, huge landing spots, fat cats we used to call them. And so you could literally fly, you jumped, long sprint up, you jumped, and you could fly like Superman, like that. And so we were singing, we were, we were trying to compare how long who can go the furthest. So to do that, we all, several of us stood in a line, like 10, and the person would jump and would fly over us and land on it. So you kept adding one. Right? And there was this guy, I remember from the other gymnastic group, he was in the middle of us all. He said, no, I'm standing in the middle. I don't want to be there. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be the first or the last because the first guy can get it. If the guy doesn't take off properly, he's going to go into. And if he doesn't make the distance, the last guy is going to be landed on. So I'll stay in the middle. But he was quite a humorous guy. And so several people were going fast. And when, everyone, if, when one goes above him, you would say, uh, brute, Aramis, <laughs> his nose up, and he would, he would smell the scent. Of the guys that are flying over you, you know. And uh, I thought of that illustration when I was, I was thinking about this. Every one of us has a scent, right? Every one of us has a fragrance. You know what Paul says? We have become the fragrance of Christ in the world. We have become the fragrance of Christ in the world, okay? I, I want to encourage you, maintain your scent. Grace has got to be visible. It's visibilized by glory. Maintain your difference. Don't blend in and lose your distinction. You are distinct. And all those distinct must have distinctives, characteristics by which they can be distinguished from others. You never distinguish from another until we can recognize distinctives in you. That make you separate. Don't blend in so much you like a chameleon. And we, no, one can, no, no one even knows that you are son of God. When you come in, the fragrance of God. Esther was the fragrance of Christ in the Persian Empire. But her name, Esther, literally means two things. Hidden. Everyone say hidden. It also means star. Now watch. What is star uh, symbolic of in scripture? Whenever you see or hear star in the Bible, it's always symbolic of sonship. Right? How do we know that? Remember Joseph? Joseph had a dream. He dreamt the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were being what? Were, were bowing to him. Sun and moon, representative of his parents. 11 stars, watch. Representative of Jacob's other sons who are also his brothers. The reference to star in the Bible, watch, is a reference firstly to sonship, secondly to brotherhood. What did God say to Abraham? Your descendants, your sons, will be like what? Will be like the stars in the sky. So there again, stars is a definite reference to sonship. But you can never ever talk about sonship without referencing brotherhood. Right? So is Esther a star? Yes. She's a son and only sons can administrate key aspects of the kingdom of God. Only sons can, can administrate God's purpose in a jurisdiction. I want to encourage you, you must know your sonship. You must know that you know that you know that you are a son. 
But no true son only relates to his heavenly father. If you claim sonship in reference to God your father, by saying that, simultaneously you're also saying, I love your other sons. I have brothers. Many people love God their father, but cannot love his other sons their brother. In fact, your love for God is proved by your love for your brothers. Question. Did Esther love her brothers? Yes. Now here's the deal, brethren. Romans 5.19 says, For by one man's disobedience all were made unrighteous. But by the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. Yes, Esther, watch. Her personal, private obedience doesn't only benefit her. It benefits and positively impacts a whole corporate community. The individual, action, individual actions of one person affects an entire community. Now obedience is not a personal private matter anymore. Because yeah? by the obedience of one, the power of singular obedience has a powerful, positive corporate impact upon a whole community. Right? Esther was one son. But you know, we are the corporate son. Yes? We are the corporate son of God. We are sons individual, individually, yes. But God is into corporate sonship. Any individual son that doesn't have a corporate mentality in reference to the brotherhood of the kingdom will not be used significantly. Esther's only used significantly because she apprises the welfare not just of herself, but of her brethren scattered throughout 127 provinces. You've got to think broader. So now, I told you this last week, when I'm tempted to sin, why will I not sin now? Part of my mentality that helps me to keep me straight is, I can't fail now because I have to be obedient because by the obedience of one, I will bring a positive impact upon, upon many. Right? Upon many. So, uh, I'm more corporately minded in my individual actions. In my private, personal, individual dispositions, I have a corporate mentality. Not so? Right? So Esther has this at her heart. But here's the thing. What do stars do? I tell you that you better shine. Eh? You better shine. Eh? As we say, rise and shine. Esther shone. What was so attractive about the girl wasn't so much her external beauty, as powerful as that may have been, and the extensive preparation and purification processes of that one year in that beauty spa. <laughs> there was something inward that shone outward. Right? The proudful person focuses on the external. And how they can impress with externalities. The humble person focuses on the hidden, what the scripture calls the hidden person of the heart. Was Esther hidden? What does Esther's name mean again? Come on, talk to me. Star and she that is hidden. I think she shines because she values a hiddenness. She's hidden. 
She, she functions in total obscurity. She's not like the overt, in-your-face kind of girl. She's recessive. In fact, Mordecai has to provoke her to action. Right? But she's not one to take things for granted. I like what someone said in the chat group in the week. Even when she makes requests to the king and to the king's chamberlains, you know what she just says? She says, if it pleases the king, she makes her request. She doesn't just go there and take things for, for granted. Okay? And so, l- let, me, let me point to you a, a few scriptures. Psalm 1, 127 says, watch, I'm going to close with this. Two more scriptures. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are the children of once youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. Now watch. It says like arrows. What do you do with arrows? Shoot them. It says like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the sons of one's youth. So sonship is akin to an arrow. The depiction of an arrow in the Bible is a reference to sonship. Right? Now Isaiah 49 says this. Please listen carefully. Sorry, this is not working, but listen carefully. It says, verse 2, In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has made me to be a select arrow, and he has hidden me in his quiver. Watch. He has made me to be excuse me, a select arrow, and he hid me where? What is the quiver? The quiver is that pouch where the arrows are. And the archer will take arrows in his bow and he will. Where, is, where are arrows hidden? In the, in the quiver. Some of you are quivering in the quiver. You're saying, when is my time coming? When am I going to be shot? When am I going to be used? When am I going to stand <coughs> me, and play a significant role in the outcome of the purposes of God and contribute to God's purposes. Excuse me. He has concealed me. You know the word select? Everyone say select. The word select means choice, polished or prepared. No arrow is simply taken from the quiver until the arrow is polished, prepared, it's chosen. Okay? And the word select means watch. This word select means is barur in the Hebrew and it literally means to be purified and to be sharpened. To be purified and to be sharpened. You see, before Esther got center stage in God's purposes, she was kept under the sharpening of Mordecai. A spiritual father has got to sharpen, fashion, shape, polish the arrow. And you know, usually the spiritual father will know the timing. When to release the son into destiny. Right? No arrow shoots itself. Do you know? Have you ever seen an arrow jump into the bow? It says, I'm taking off. (laughs) Doesn't happen, eh? It takes human officiation. It takes an individual to administrate the bow. And notice, this is a clue for you. A clue. If you take a bow... And you pull back the string. Everyone say tension. 
Cooperate with tension. Tension is not a bad thing. Tension could very, very well be the season of your preparedness to be launched. Not everything is evil. But tension usually in the Father. Because the Father mans the bow. Not tense in a negative sense. But he will select an arrow that has been purified. Brethren, I, I speak to you as a father in Christ. Just watch. For some of you, you've been in the quiver. God has been talking. God has been pruning. God has been preparing. God has been shaping. God has been cutting away. God has been circumcising. God has been preparing you. Might I suggest to this corporate house, the house, the time for this house has come. I say that seriously. The time for this house has come to rise up and to be counted, to be used by God, not as individual sons anymore, but as a corporate entity because the welfare of our brethren are at stake. Now the press, watch, the press to mature. The press to grow up is not so much, I'm not so much fixated about my own issues. Yes, I am, but primarily at at the back of my mind is, I want to be an Esther in life. I want to be used to bring benefit to a whole range of other individuals. I don't want to be self-absorbed. It's not just me, myself, and I anymore. I want to have a passion. I love the song we sang. I want to care for others like Jesus cared for me. Spirit, touch your church. Stir the hearts of men. That is how I want to live. And there's a verse in Peter. Let me me just quote it. 1 Peter 3, from verse 1 to 5, and then we're going to pray. We have five minutes. 1 Peter 3, from verse 1 to 5. I haven't really got into the real crux of what I wanted to speak about this morning. Uh, But just the way... The way I believe God has so orchestrated things. Okay? Let me give you a key that will set you off on grace reception like you've never had it before. This contains a key. What does Esther's name mean again? Come on, talk to me. What does Esther mean? Young lady? Star and hidden. Okay. Got to test you. See, I'm a teacher at heart. Once a teacher, always a teacher. Okay. A star and she that is hidden. Now watch. There's two aspects to the hiddenness of Esther. One is, she's kept in total obscurity until the set time. And she's propelled all by the the counsel of a spiritual father, Mordecai, to center stage. Now listen carefully. Do you know, for, for Esther, the Bible says, Mordecai warned Esther not to tell Xerxes or Ahasuerus that she's a Jew. Keep your identity a secret until a specific time. And only when she revealed Haman's plot to her, she said, My people. It was the first time the king knew this, this girl I marry is a Jew. <laughs> Be careful who you marry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Remember, was it Jacob? Was it the, yeah, he thought he's marrying Leah and he got up. He already found out in the morning. I don't know how this guy was so blind. After the marriage was consummated, the next morning he found out, I married the wrong girl. <laughs> I married the sister. And he had to work another seven years. Right? You know what the Bible says? 
that she listened. Everyone say she listened. The Bible says she, Mordi, Esther listened to Mordecai, not to reveal her identity, as she had done in times past. Obedience for Esther wasn't momentary. It was a characteristic of life. How is humility evidenced and expressed? I taught you last week. It's by obedience. The Bible says of Jesus, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the death on the cross. Can't talk humility if you're not prepared to obey. Humility is the proof of obedience. It's preparatory to obedience, but it's the outcome also of an obedient life. It's evidence and expression. So watch. Many people will listen to you while you are being made. But once you are being made and you instruct them and they reject your counsel. Esther listened to Mordecai before she was king. Esther listened to Mordecai, queen, sorry. Esther listened to Mordecai when she was queen. She did not view her powerful political authority as a reason not to subject herself to the spiritual authority she saw in Mordecai. And that was the reason for her success. Many people you help along the way, when they make it, they feel that they don't need your counsel anymore. And that is the point. Their breakthrough becomes the start of their breakdown because they reject spiritual fatherly oversight. Jacob called for Joseph. Rather, Joseph called for Jacob, remember? In Egypt, when he became prime minister, second to the Pharaoh. Joseph was second to Pharaoh. And who did Joseph call for? His brothers and his papa. He said, get Jacob down here. Get my dad here. And when dad came, Jacob spends the whole of Genesis 48, the whole of Genesis 49 doing what? Prophesying and speaking into Joseph's life and the rest of the brothers and Ephraim and Manasseh. You need fatherly oversight. Let me just say this, brethren, before I read this. Watch. I know, let me say it as a prophetic blanket statement. You will be successful. That I know. All of you here, you will be successful. Even if you don't think it, I make a declaration to you now. God's going to use you powerfully in whatever field He has earmarked for you to function in. That is a given. Tell your neighbor that's a given. That I know. Even the youngsters here, our visitors, all of you, I know you, whatever field you, you choose, the Lord saying to all of you, you will be successful. But the wisdom I give you, the counsel I give you today is, when you come into what you think is the apex of God's will for your life, at that point, don't let pride enter. At that point, when you have all the power, all this way, seeming trappings of success, always bow your heart in humility to spiritual fatherly oversight that can speak into your life to direct you further. In fact, she needed Mordecai more when she was queen than ever before. The voice to guide, the voice to, to lead. Right? Now, everyone say hidden. Let me just read this. 
In the same way, wives, be submissive. This is 1 Peter 3. In the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Verse 2. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. All this is saying is, wives, submit to your husband. Be chaste, be obedient, be submissive, be respectful. Verse 3, your adornment must not be merely the, how many wives prepared yourselves today in front of the mirror? All the ladies, yes? This verse is saying, watch, ladies, your adornment mustn't be solely with external things. The braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, jewelry, and the putting on of dresses. What it's not saying, it's not speaking against this, don't get the wrong message. Please use the makeup. (laughs) Go for the hairdo. Go for the spa treatment. Dawn yourself. I'm all for these things. You dawn yourself for your husband. Not so? Then it says, but the the, the greater reality is this, verse 4. But let it be what? Let it be the hidden person of the heart. With what? What is the hidden person of the heart? What did Esther have as hidden qualities within her that made her external beauty attractive. There was something inward that enhanced the outward. And this verse says it was what? It was the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Everyone say gentle. Say quiet. And this is a characteristic of your spirit, not your soul. It's the essence of the person, that, who you are. The word gentle here is akin to to humble. Same root Greek word is used. So we can say, let it be that of a humble and of a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very, very precious. Watch. You're not going to shine until you're hidden. You're not going to shine as the Son of God until you master these internal qualities of gentleness, of humility, of a quiet spirit. Do you know one of the meanings of Haman is tumultuous, raging, riotous, noisy. Haman is noisy, rageous, riotous, and he's confronting an Esther who's quiet in spirit. Sometimes to depose a thing, you act in the opposite spirit to the thing. That's why it says a soft answer turns away wrath. Sometimes you feel you must meet head on the disposition by which that confronts you. Publicly, you simply act in the opposite spirit. Doesn't make sense. But it's God's way of doing things. Everyone just say, tell you, just be quiet. It's like, just humble your heart and be quiet. So just be gentle. Cooperate with God's pruning of you to make you a select arrow, choice arrow, a polished shaft in his quiver. Because God has taken all this time to prepare you. You have come to the kingdom for a time such as this. Let your life count. 
don't be so, you know what, the other mean, Haman has two nuances to his name. It's riotous, it's noisy, it's tumultuous. But the word, the primary meaning of Haman is solitary and alone. Yeah is one, it's all about me, myself and I, me, myself and I, nobody else. Riotous, boisterous. And yes, the other girl, quiet, humble, and her mindset is not me. What about the welfare of my brothers? The greatest threat to the church today is the spirit of Haman, which is the spirit of individualism, spirit of isolationism, spirit of the solitary. But you know, Psalm 68, verse 6 says, What does God do to the solitary? He takes the solitary and he puts the solitary in families. Yeah? So lose your solitariness. It's lose your independence. It's not about... Let me just say this. It is the most dangerous thing today to live apart from the body of Christ. I can guarantee. God will make sure His people... History proves this. The dark ages, there was always a light shining of God's people, a remnant that He kept throughout the darkest period in human history, publicly. In every era... In every aeon, God has always preserved His people. The safest place to be is amongst the family of God. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Amen? So, I want to banish the spirit of Haman. We're going to kill Haman this morning. (laughs) Hang him on those gallows. I'm talking symbolically. So, in your mind, you say, that, that boisterous spirit... That always wants to defend that prophet. I'm going to hang that gallows for Haman this morning. That spirit that opposes the corporate welfare of God's people. I'm going to hang that. That spirit of individualism, independence. I'm going to hang that. I am part of the body of Christ. I'm going to adopt the position of the Esther. The welfare of my brothers takes on priority. I'll be a myrtle. I'll be a hadassah. I'll let my fragrance, my scent, shine forth in my school, at my varsity, at my workplace. I'll be the representation of God in my jurisdiction. Whatever my sphere, on my soccer team, in my sports club, many of you, yeah, young boys are, are, are in teams, you play sports, etc. Uh, you be the fragrance of Christ in that domain. You shine like a star. Now just remind the person next to you, shine like a star. Don't be a disaster. <laughs> be God's star. Right? You, know what the, you know what the wise men said when they came to the Christ child, Matthew 2? We saw his star in the east, but we have come to worship him. All stars, all suns that shine must lead people to a place of greater worship of the Christ. Amen? So lift your hands to the Lord. Everywhere. You don't need to stand, just sit there where you are. I'm going to pray for all, for, all, for all of us. Just quieten your hearts right now. There's been so much warfare in the Spirit against this message. I felt this morning. And even in the week preparing it. It was so, I felt. But I know it's of the Lord. 
I know that you're going to be significant role players, all of you, in the outcomes of God globally. You're not just an ordinary person. I say this to you, like Mordecai said to Esther, God has brought you to the kingdom for a time like this. Firstly, I'm going to pray for the young people. All the young people stand up quickly. The adults, you can remain seated just for now. Just feel this burden. All the youngsters, just stand up. All the young people, just stand up before the Lord. Just lift your hands to the Lord. The parents, just, just maybe hold them or touch them. Father, we present our children to you. As they stand in your presence, I pray, Father, that you sovereignly even now would unveil to them by revelation the strategic role they are going to play in the kingdom to which they've come. And they've come to the kingdom in this season, in this time. They have come for a time such as this. Every child, every youth, every adolescent, every young man and woman that is standing today, I ask the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and brings no sorrow would be their portion in Jesus' mighty name. I bless these young people on your behalf. I, I decree that they will be princesses and princes in their chosen fields, in their jurisdictions of operation. I know, God, that they are going to be key role players, Esther's, that shine. They may be hidden for the time being, but you are preparing and fashioning and molding, polishing, preparing, fine honing. Thank you for those Esthers amongst us. So we pray that you would oversee. I pray even now, like Mordecai walked backwards and forwards every day to inquire of the welfare of Esther, I ask even now, God, set up processes by which you'll give oversight. You'll give oversight to the development and the maturation of each of our young people. The preparedness for which you will have to, to prepare them for their own destinies. I pray, O oh God, that this will have your personal oversight. I ask this and I pray great grace be their portion even now in the name of Jesus. Great grace and peace be their portion in Jesus' mighty name. Okay, let's all stand. Lift up our hands. While studying, and um, I had a difficult sleep, I think on the Friday evening, all these thoughts of this book were pulsating in and through my mind. And the Lord spoke silently to my heart and said, Do not be phased by the plot even against you. Do not be phased. Let me just say this, brethren, you might be, not be aware of it, but not everybody likes you. <laughs> yeah? Uh, tell you, but that's a big revelation for you. You thought everyone likes you. Let me just say this, not everybody likes you. And there are Hamans in this world. I'm, I'm going to pray a very strong prayer now. Authoritatively, I want to cancel every satanic scheme, because there are schemes. There are people that are jealous of you, that hate you, do not want to see your advancement, do not want to see your progress. But I, I, as an apostolic representation of the authority of God over you this morning, we take authority over that scheme. Let's just pray together. Pray seriously. Lift up your hands before the Lord. 
Our Father, we thank you that no weapon that is formed against us will prosper. And every tongue that is raised up against us that speaks antagonistically to your purpose in us, that maligns, that misrepresents, I, I cancel the effect of those words now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I decree your word that what the enemy works for our destruction, you are able to take and rework for our construction. I thank you, O God, that we will not be less than for the plots of our enemy. But the very plot of the enemy, I decree now for every family, for every marriage, for everyone in the workplace, I decree the plot will not disadvantage you, but the plot actually now, Father, in the name of the Lord, it will advantage you. It will serve not as a roadblock in your path, but it will serve as the medium through which you will be catapulted, propelled into exactly where God wants you to be. So do not be discouraged, Son of God. Do not be dejected. Besides the pressure that you bear in the present time, do not be discouraged because God says, I will take any plan devised for your ill and I will make it work for your good. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Amen. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Amen. It will not work. Bless you. You may be seated.